Scripture today is from John, Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 13. So if you want to turn on your phones or on your Bibles, we'll read the text this morning. Starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 40 years to build this temple. And will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here ends the reading of God's word. Anytime a movement, an idea, an organization gets started, it starts with a spark, an excitement. An idea, a movement. But over time, the original idea, the original spark, the original vision tends to drift. The spark left unattended will naturally go out. The movement, the idea, the organization will naturally become more about its own survival and sustainability than the purpose for which it originally started. We can see this in all kinds of business. We can see this in all kinds of government agencies. You name a movement. Eventually it becomes about itself more than its original purpose. This seems to be what happens in the Old Testament. We've been tracking the last few weeks as God has established His presence among His people in Israel. And the first thing He does is establish the tabernacle. This mobile sort of tent that God would be in. That was to physically represent God being among them. In fact, he led them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And when God was in the temple, that cloud would come to rest in that place. It's set up like our sanctuary. The place where everyone would go. And then there was the, the holy area into which you would walk, the the priest could come in, there would be some tables in there, a lampstand in there. And then there's the Holy of Holies, which was the place where God stayed. That's why we have this little dinky step right here, because our architecture still represents this view. And in that Holy of Holies would have been the Ark of the Covenant, which which would have been about this size, just a little bit bigger than what you see right here made of gold, and it was represented as the seat or the footstool to the seat of God. And so they would follow this whenever they would travel. And whenever they would stop and stay in an area for some time, they would set up the tabernacle, and this was one of the first things that was put there when it was all completed. 
And so God established his presence. God established his care with this people Israel. And man, was it important for them coming out of Egypt to have this kind of symbolism, right? That God had, had God abandoned us? Had God left us? We're supposed to be God's chosen people. What are we doing in slavery? But the, the image of the, the experience of the exodus, of, of those plagues, of getting across the river, and then of setting up the tabernacle, that started to change Israel. Started to make them different, make them God's people. And then as Israel finally got into the land, God used David to raise money and then eventually his son Solomon to build a permanent temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a little nothing city. And David really rebuilt it and set up this amazing temple. And there was great praising, great rejoicing at this temple. There was probably nothing else like Solomon's temple in all the world at that time. But then there was drift. Drift away from God. Drift away from God's purposes. Already in the, in the lifetime of Solomon, as he has all these different wives of different faiths and of different regions, uh, worship of other gods starts to creep in to Israel. Maybe even a little bit into the temple. Or perhaps the temple itself started to become an idol. But by the time Solomon's children and Solomon's children's children are in there, the, the temple really starts to fall away. They were warned by the prophets, Israel was. Warned that this would lead to bad things. Walter Brueggemann, uh, a famous uh, Old Testament scholar, says that the prophets didn't predict the fall of Israel. It wasn't like future telling. No, really, they anticipate it. They see it happening in front of them, and they know that what's happening is not sustainable The prophets are really in the position of perspective and proclamation. Saying, if God is God, then the world should be this way. And when it's not, then something is going to have to change. Amos writes, 150 years before the temple is destroyed. In uh, Amos 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass by them. The song of the temple will become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft of the wheat. Amos sees this coming. He sees what's going on. Israel has fallen into two problems. Two problems that I think churches can still fall into today. One is the preference of prophets over people. Now here I don't mean the P-H-E-T kind. I'm saying the F-I-T prophets. The numbers become more important than the lives. That's Israel. They start looking for the money. They start looking for the benefits. They start looking for the power instead of caring about the people. In fact, they start to care at the expense of the lives around them. 
The second dilemma, I think, is place over presence. Place over presence. They start to care so much about the place that they lose sight that what's really important is the presence that's in the place. They lose sight of the reality that before they even had the place, they had the presence. That the presence is ultimate. The place may be temporary. And because of these things, Israel loses their land and their temple. Sort of happens in stages. Israel is at that point two kingdoms, but slowly they begin to be taken off to other areas. And happens totally in about 589 BC when Jerusalem, including the temple, is destroyed by the Babylonians. In fact, they don't just like kind of knock it over. I mean, they take it and throw stones everywhere. They totally demolish. The Ark of the Covenant, this great symbol of God's presence, is from here on unknown in location. They never get the Ark back. And what the Babylonians would do is, is if they wanted to really put you down, they would take you and spread you out. They would spread you out across all of their land so that you weren't together as your own people. And you know what happened? After a couple generations, you would have to intermarry and you'd live in other cultures. And eventually there'd be nobody left who even remembers the old nation. You would just be Babylonian. That's what they did. And this exile is a major crisis for Israel. Jeremiah chapter 4, anticipating after Amos that this is going to happen, but still well before it actually happens, describes this as the world collapsing, not just the temple, not just the nation. Many take on foreign names and live lives in other places. After all, hasn't God abandoned them? Many who are left in Israel are forced to intermarry with the Babylonians giving us a people group that's later really hated called the Samaritans. So now you understand the background to those people that play such an important role in so many of Jesus' stories. Around 581 B.C., while in exile, Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple being built. If you want to read about it, you can go to Ezekiel 40 through 43. It gives amazing details, more details than we have of any other temple. And they're not even details of the actual temple. They're his vision of what it's going to be like. And he makes it very physical. How big is it going to be? What's it going to look like? What's going to happen there? But Ezekiel's vision seems like a dream to Israel. Is there any hope when we have traveled off course this far? But Ezekiel's word and the ultimate words of all the prophets is, yes, there is coming back because God is still God even when we live like he's not. The Jewish people are later allowed to return home, about 537 B.C. But the question is, come home to what? Jerusalem is rubble. The temple stones block by block have been removed. All their property has been looted There are people now living in what used to be their homes. And imagine this. It's been at least 52 years since any of them lived in that land. If they were carried off earlier, then it's even longer than that. In that time, with those kind of lifespans that they had, that's multiple generations. There may not have been anyone who returned to Israel that remembered it. Nobody who had actually seen the temple coming back, or very, very few. Most had been born and raised somewhere in the Babylonian Empire. They probably had Babylonian names and only knew 
the life they lived in Babylon. Israel is right back in Egypt again. Do you see that? They're right back in the same situation of crisis because they drifted so far off. But now they get to come back. But to come back means to come back to nothing, to come back to work. Some did not even return. It is only as some people really started to encourage them to come back that they did. If you want to read about this, you can read the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're the two ones that really kind of help bring everything back together. Nehemiah begins to build the walls of Jerusalem, or of the Israeli part of Jerusalem. Um, Why walls? To keep people out? No, Israel was always meant to be a salt and light to the nations. But you can't be salt and light when you look exactly like the nations. One of the things that that Nehemiah understood is that for the people to be the people of God, they had to look different than the world around them. Not totally isolated from the world, but somehow insulated from the world. And so Nehemiah goes about building the walls. But it is Ezra at that time that builds the temple. In Ezra 2, verses 68 and 69, it says this. Some of the heads of the families... When they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasure of the work 61 derricks of gold, 5,000 minutes of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Ezra takes up a collection from those coming back, those who probably didn't have very much. And he builds the temple. The temple that would be the longest standing temple would stand for almost 500 years. And Ezra becomes a teacher trying to help the people not just return to Israel, but return to the people that they were supposed to be the whole time. Now both Ezra and Nehemiah face resistance. It is hard work to rebuild the temple. It is hard work to bring things back to where they should have been the whole time, to rediscover that spark again. But they do it. Now, I wish I could tell you that Israel finally gets it right. I guess they do for a time. But then we get these words about Jesus, where this temple that has been built and is now rebuilt by Herod, uh, which is a terrible thing for the Jewish people, Because when Herod builds it, he builds this fancy, amazing, amazing temple. But it's primarily a temple to Herod, not to God. And the people fall into the same struggles once again. Place becomes more important than presence. Prophets become more important than people. And Jesus walks in there. And he is God's presence on earth now, and he's not recognized in this place. And he walks through, and the money changers are all abusing the people, making money off of God's house. And he comes in and shakes it up, tears it down. And when he's asked to defend it, what does he say? Tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. And they rightly question, there's no way you could build this temple in three days. But Jesus is the new temple. Jesus has come to be God's sacrifice, God's presence on earth. He comes to be the final and only necessary sacrifice to be the ultimate high priest. And the temple that Herod had renovated 
would be destroyed in 70 AD. And there has never been another temple there since. In fact, the Jewish faith today is based totally on synagogues because there's no more temple. So where does that leave us today? Well, I think it brings up several important questions for us. One, if there is no temple anymore, the question needs to be asked, should there be a church? Should there be a church? And there are people who argue today, no, that what the church ought to do is meet in homes the way the early church did when they were kicked out of the temples and when the temple was finally destroyed. But the church didn't do that for very long. They felt the need to build places of worship, places of salt and light. Place, though less important than presence, is still important. That God wants and needs and calls for people in different places to stand up and be God's presence in that place. And so, yes, I would argue that there still needs to be a church. Question number two, and I'm not trying to be blasphemous here. One honest question of the text. Why doesn't God build his own house? I mean, if God is God, God has the ability, in the text, he makes the world, right? So we can't argue that God is incapable of building his own house and building it right and keeping it right. Why does God continually ask people to give? We've seen it the last three weeks that Moses collects for the the tabernacle, that David and Solomon collects from the people for the temple, that Ezra for the rebuilding of the temple... Nehemiah even puts a lot of his own money on the line when he builds the walls. Why does God continue to tie himself to people? Have you been around people lately? If you were God, why would you tie yourself to the efforts, to the giving of people? Because God wants relationship. He wants his people to be invested, and so he asks them to invest. This is why it's important to give. Not for the temple, not for the church. That's very secondary. But because God wants us to give because that's the only way that our heart really gets led. Number three. What can a church learn from this? I think the church really needs to learn that a big part of moving into the future is returning to our past. That it's like swinging. If you've ever been on a swing, what do you have to do? Sometimes you've got to lean forward, and sometimes you've got to lean back. And you've got to sort of switch back and forth, leaning forward, leaning back. Kick your legs forward, pull your legs back. I think it's like that. We've got to look to the future while at the same time looking to the past. And we've got to go back and forth. A couple of interesting Very interesting things that I have seen in looking at our church history. I'm going to go into this in a lot more detail next week. Number one, I've seen that our church has has always had an importance in education. We've always wanted people to learn. We helped start a missionary school. We used to have a major Sabbath school program. That as as we're in this time now, one of the things that's become important again is teaching, is learning. Number two, I find it interesting that God in this church's history has time and time again asked people to step up at different times. That our church sensed the need to move to Oak Hill before our church on 3rd Avenue burned to the ground. 
But there were people that discerned and said, okay, we need to move locations. They started raising money for, those, for that location. And it probably saved the church that they listened to that discernment and stepped up the way they did. Because then when that other church burned, the process was already started to move. If they hadn't been in that process, I'm not sure this church survives that fire. And here's the most interesting one. Last year, our church got really excited about making Operation Christmas Child boxes. We made these shoe boxes uh, that go to other countries through an organization called Samaritan's Purse. Uh, and we're, we're about ready to do those again. You're going to hear more info about that in the next couple weeks. Um, but we got really excited about making boxes. But you know what I found? I found that this church has a history of making boxes. I found a notation um, from the uh, sort of 1780s in there, uh, uh, no, 1880s in there, that our church was very involved in making boxes for freed slaves. What happens after the Civil War is a lot of slaves who are now suddenly freed men, they were called, start fleeing to the north because even though they're freed down south, they're not necessarily really liked down south. And so there's this influx of not really well-educated freed slaves that come north. And they come north a lot of times through the canal system, through the river system, through the major transportation, which means Pittsburgh ends up getting a fair amount of these in the outlying areas. Our church used to make boxes for freed slaves back 140 years ago. Isn't it fascinating that we got really excited about it, even though none of us were alive then, that we got really excited about something that in our church history, it's in our spiritual DNA. I think that's the way church works. I think that's the way the future of the church, not just our church, I mean the church global, is going to have to be. We're going to have to rediscover who we've always been. Next week I'm going to tell the history of this church. Next week, next week we're going to do commitment cards to give over the next three years to improve this church and to take care of this church. Are we going to do those because God needs us? No. We're going to do those because God wants us. Because he wants to be close to us. He wants us to be a part of being his presence in New Brighton, in Beaver County, and throughout the world. He wants us to invest in his work. And so my challenge to you is that you pray. Pray for our church Pray for our celebration and our campaign and consider what your part would be. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your love, for your presence. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the example of the temple in the Old Testament and for the saving work of Jesus Christ. Speak to us and move us. Let things go smoothly for this campaign and this celebration that you would receive all the glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.